The book at hand is called Trapped Under the Sea, One Engineering Marvel, Five Men, and a Disaster Ten Miles into the Darkness. That title uh, maybe gives you at least a little hint of the complexity of the story which we're going to be exploring on today's morning show. On the one hand, it involves the kind of details that are amazing and yet entirely invisible to the rest of us. The kind of details that go into designing the tunnels that are underneath the ground, the streets on which we drive, uh, that technology which keeps our, our water clean, or uh, other ways in which uh, modern life is, is made bearable. And uh, such a, an engineering marvel was undertaken uh, in the city of Boston, specifically to find a way for it to uh, not dump its waste uh, directly into Boston Harbor, which had been befouled by such uh, environmental disregard for, for decades. And uh, the construction of a, of a new way to uh, treat the waste of its citizens uh, led also to an exceedingly steep challenge, which ultimately led to uh, an incredibly brave venture uh, far underneath the, the surface of the earth and ultimately in what, what amounted to a personal tragedy. And the story unfolds in uh, remarkable fashion in this beautifully written book by Neil Swidey. Um, he is uh, the author of The Assist, a Boston Globe bestseller, and uh, also a co-author of Last Lion, the Fall and Rise of Ted Kennedy. Uh, he is a staff writer for the Boston Globe magazine. So he knows this part of the world very well, including Boston, where these dramatic events uh, primarily unfolded. Again, the title of his fascinating new book is called Trapped Under the Sea. One engineering marvel, five men, and a disaster ten miles into the darkness, published by Crown. Neil Swidey, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Great to be here, Greg. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could, first of all, say a word about that initial point that I'm not sure I made all that clearly or eloquently, but the fact that so much goes on in the world around us that we know nothing about, uh, we being ordinary citizens. And and I think the example of, of the, the story that your, your book focuses upon is such a perfect example of that. Yeah, thank you. I think you made the point very well, but it's one that resonates with me. I, I think uh, in this modern era, we think, all of us, we kind of take for granted uh, this infrastructure that makes modern life possible, the bridges that connect the land, the uh, the tunnels that, that move uh, waste uh, through um, uh, through the area and out from away from us. Um, the skyscrapers that kiss the sky. Uh, we think that these things are built on paper or in pixels because they can be um, uh, designed uh, to push the limits of the possible. Uh, but the reality is nothing grand is built on paper or in pixels. Uh, it's Everything lasting is built by real workers uh, using real equipment and facing real danger. And I think it... Uh, it's incumbent on all of us to appreciate that more and to understand uh, as we look around this world uh, what makes it possible and who makes it possible and make sure we're, we're, we're serving those workers uh, well by thinking through things for them. Right. And that certainly did not happen in this very unfortunate uh, situation in Boston. Uh, ahead of us talking about what specifically uh, unfolded, 
Um, we should talk about Boston Harbor and the uh, intriguing history of how it came to be in, in such a, a wretched state. One of the things that's most puzzling still to me uh, is when you mentioned that Boston, and over 100 years before, had, in your words, unveiled a sewer treatment system that Scientific American had trumpeted as perhaps the most sophisticated in the world. But obviously there was something very seriously wrong with it uh, that, that, that things could go uh, so awry. Exactly. Those, in the late 1800s, remember that as a nation, we took infrastructure seriously. So if you look around most areas, um, the, some of the, the restored, most lovingly restored, uh, uh, beautiful buildings uh, are uh, water pump houses. Uh, uh, these were kinds of things that, that we took seriously. And back there, uh, there was this effort to say, hey, we can do things. We can do great things. Uh, but what happened in, in Boston, well, two things. One, it, it was a very sophisticated uh, uh, treatment plan, but it wasn't really treating it. It was just moving it around. Um, and that happened in a lot of places around the country. Um, uh, and then when, when the populations uh, swelled, uh, and the systems weren't adequate to handle it. And then the, the public appetite for investing uh, lots of money in things you never see, uh, tunnels and pipes and uh, underground, uh, that sort of withered, and politicians lost their uh, stomach for making big investments in things that their taxpayers couldn't see, rather than a park or a pool or a, you know or a school, uh, which there was a kind of a, a tangible um, uh, result for it. Mm. And so it was allowed in Boston and around uh, lots of places around the country, um, this infrastructure was allowed to fall apart and people didn't care about it. It was worse in Boston for two reasons. One, just the symbolic issue of Boston Harbor being kind of where it all began, where those colonists dumped their tea, uh, where, where the original sort of uh, power of uh, the colonial maritime economy began. Uh, that had become this cesspool where uh, barely treated and sometimes untreated human waste was just unceremoniously dumped into the harbor every day. Mm. You describe some of the horrific environmental damage that was done to the harbor, including the creation of what uh, somebody evidently called black mayonnaise, which is the... the a way, a real pretty awful way, to describe the sort of the biological state of the, the essentially the, the the harbor floor. The harbor floor, exactly, is just this kind of uh, this oozing death sauce, essentially, that was sort of smothering out all the flora and fauna and and sea life that was there. Um, it was just uh, this uh, uh, kind of sediment uh, that was a metaphor for the neglect. And the um, and the, the disuse of of the harbor for many years. So, um, what triggered a response to that? Uh, if if in general the public tended not to care very much about such such matters, uh, how how did that ultimately change? Well, this it, it's a it's a great question, and it's also I think a great reminder that even as a, a society where we sort of have derided and diminished what government can do, that government is still capable of doing great things. Because if you come to Boston now, 
and you sit out at the waterfront, uh, you see a sparkling, uh, gorgeous harbor that is the scene of the revitalization of the city. And every city across the country uh, is capable of doing something grand like this. What happened in Boston was it became a national issue. Um, if you remember back to the 1988 presidential campaign where George H.W. Bush was running against the governor here at the time of Massachusetts, Michael Dukakis, and Bush uh, invited the national media to follow him along on a barge trailing through Boston Harbor, and he shamed uh, the governor here about the neglect that had happened. As it happened, there was already work had begun, but the footage was devastating uh, that showed just how bad the harbor had begun. They started this process, which was a court-ordered, federal court-ordered cleanup of the harbor. That's what it took to to get this thing clean. Um, there was a two-step process. One was the creation of this sophisticated, one of the world's biggest sewage treatment plants. And the second piece was something no one even sees, which was the world's longest tunnel of its kind uh, that went uh, from Boston out into the deep Atlantic waters of Massachusetts Bay um, that would send the treated wastewater out there away from um, the harbor and away from the city. So that is the uh, nine-and-a-half-mile-long Deer Island outfall tunnel. Exactly, yes. And this thing is an engineering marvel. That's why the subtitle of the book has the engineering marvel in it, because there's no other way to describe it. Not only was it the world's longest tunnel of its kind, it was a dead-end tunnel. Usually long tunnels have people can work from both ends and meet in the middle. That's the best way to do it, because you have access uh, from both sides. Here you only had one way in. Uh, But the big thing about it that makes it so remarkable is it can move up to a billion gallons of treated wastewater through the tunnel every day, all those 10 miles, and there's not a single pump or electrical source inside the tunnel. What moves that billion gallons of wastewater is gravity, and the tunnel had to be designed perfectly in order to keep that flow going, and it was. You describe some of that in a in your second chapter called Island Secrets, and this is where we first meet a man by the name of Doug McDonald, who uh, gives up a, a very good job in a law firm in Boston in order to oversee the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority, which uh, oversaw sewage and water services uh, for Boston and surrounding uh, communities. And this was the agency essentially in charge of responsible for the cleanup of the harbor and the construction of this new facility. And my word, uh, Mr. McDonald and his colleagues had an enormously, almost insanely complicated uh, task confronting them in, uh, in overseeing this. Absolutely. And Doug McDonald is a fascinating guy uh, for a number of reasons. One, as you said, he left a really good job to take this thankless post uh, that paid half the salary he was getting before and gained with an enormous amount of scrutiny and, and uh, 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 tension. Um, you know, there were pickets uh, outside because the Massachusetts had waited so long to deal with its filthy harbor uh, that it had lost the opportunity for federal money. So that means all the money for this, you know, four to six billion dollar project had to come off the backs of 
the rate payers paying for water and sewer. So they were looking at, uh, you know, their their normal uh, bills for water and sewer tripling in a matter of a couple of months. Uh, and so there was a lot of outrage about that. And then there was this enormous... Uh, construction challenge and management challenge of uh, a project that was burning through $3 million a day at the time. It was the largest uh, of, of its kind at the time, and you had to have all these different contractors and subcontractors and others working together to make this thing possible in this uh, punishing um, uh, political environment. And McDonald was interesting, too, because he got me interested in the, the history, the kind of sordid history of this little island called Deer Island, which if you've ever flown into Boston, um, you fly right over it, and now you see these giant, you know, uh, they, they look like uh, a dozen eggs, and they're these digesters, which is the new treatment plant there for there. But the, the island has this fascinating history going back to before the country actually began, uh, uh, to the uh, to the uh, uh, King Philip's War, when when uh, the uh, Indians were were battling with the colonists, uh, and Deer Island back then was a place where people put things they wouldn't didn't want to have to think about, uh, and they quarantined their problems, and it stayed that way um, through the centuries until it was the sewer treatment was where they didn't want to think about, so they put their problems out there. Mm. So this is just, in a sense, one more chapter in an ongoing story. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, and a story that in some ways tells the story of America, you know, through, through, through its difficulties, through this little spit of land, um, how we handle things we don't want to have to think about. Hmm. As a society, there's probably not something uh, as good an example of that as waste. Um, what do we do with it? Uh, and for a long time, they just wanted to just dump it and not think about it uh, right. until you can't think about it anymore. Hmm. Another really fascinating facet of this story, and this is also a story that plays out all the time in the world around us, but most of us, unless we have some uh, specific uh, tangible connection to it, <laughs> know nothing about it. Uh, and, and and that is that, that so often uh, massive construction projects, and I suppose even not so massive construction projects, involve partnerships and cooperation, and sometimes that occurs under less than ideal circumstances, and that sometimes you're talking about sort of odd couples uh, that personalities can enter into the picture, that sometimes a project involves different phases that are very different from one another, and yet somehow... <laughs> they have to be done in concert with one another, even even though uh, they involve completely different people working in, in completely different ways. That seems like a, a predominant theme in your book and in this story over and over again about how cooperation uh, is important and yet often difficult, if not impossible, to perfectly achieve. That's exactly right, and that's, to me, one of the... the uh, themes that you take away from this book, um, which is how do very, very smart people uh, sometimes make very bad decisions that leave uh, workers in hard hats or dive masks or uh, other uh, people on the front line to kind of um, assume the biggest risks to bail them out. Um, and that gets at the organizational behavior. You know, nothing uh, happens uh, with uh, just corporate entities. There are people behind each of these corporate entities and personalities and egos 
Um, and you have to understand all those things uh, and understand how people communicate or fail to communicate in order uh, to avert disaster. Um, uh, and what you see here in this project is an example on one level of being able to do something that would seemingly seem out of reach, which was, you know, convert the dirtiest harbor in America to its cleanest harbor, right? You can do that. You can do that using uh, the best and the brightest minds to design things uh, that improve the public good. But you have to understand um, how people, um, the human failings uh, and the communication breakdowns and the frailties of those relationships, because at the end of this job, which took twice as long as it was supposed to, 10 years rather than five years, and uh, left uh, the contractor $100, $100 million, if not more, into debt at the end, the tensions are high, the relations are frayed, and people still have to figure out how you finish the job. So it's at the very end, a small piece at the very end of a multi-billion dollar decade-long project then takes on enormous importance because people are no longer working well with each other. And mm. you have to understand that. And, and, and even if somebody doesn't live in Boston, if, even if somebody doesn't particularly care what happens when somebody flushes a toilet in Boston, uh, there is something, a very important lesson to be learned here for all of us living in modern America. I guess that's part of what caught me by surprise. I, I didn't realize when I began reading your book that this story has a kind of pervasive importance and pertinence to all of us. I appreciate that, Greg, because that's a really important point. I think, again, the, the, the specifics of this case are, uh, are, are, are pretty specialized, but the forces that drive the action here are universal to any ambitious undertaking. Um, and so when I look at things like the rollout of Obamacare, how did that fail? That isn't even infrastructure so much as technological infrastructure and political will. Uh, how did that fail so badly? Well, you can, if you, I think if you read this book, you can understand that in a new, fresh light. You can see how people make decisions in their own little uh, vacuums um, and, and, and don't communicate well with each other. You can understand um, uh, what I described in the, um, in the book is, you know, disaster happens not often with some massive failure, but with a series of small mistakes. Any one of them wouldn't be enough to cause a huge problem, but when they all line up, uh, that's when disaster strikes, when the holes in the Swiss cheese line up. Right, so and, can... and, nobody's, and nobody's even realizing at the time the cumulative effect of uh, each and every one of those small little mistakes. I exactly. mean, particularly exactly. when you're just making this one little mistake that's just one little segment <laughs> right. of, the, of the worm. We're speaking with Neil Swidey, and we're talking about his book, Trapped Under the Sea, One Engineering Marvel, Five Men, and a Disaster, Ten Miles Into the Darkness. So let's try to describe to our listeners uh, what was being constructed in terms of this nine-and-a-half-mile-long tunnel. And, uh, and in particular, the, this really intriguing thing you described to us about how it was, in a sense, two different operations that had to line up. Exactly. Um, the, um, the, the tunnel... Um 
was uh, a uh, horizontal tunnel built hundreds of feet below the ocean, uh, moving uh, out into uh, under the sea. Uh, and at the end of it, um, this horizontal tunnel had to connect with 55 vertical pipes that would climb up from the depth uh, where the tunnel is below the ocean floor up uh, through the bedrock to the ocean floor. Uh, and each of those 55 uh, riser pipes uh, would be capped with a um, uh, what was called a diffuser head. This was all an effort to... Um, uh, limit the flow of the treated wastewater so it wouldn't uh, impact the marine life and uh, out in in the ocean uh, what that meant though is that uh, there were two different uh, joint venture companies building the two key parts of this engineering marvel um, one was boring the tunnel underneath the ocean and another had a jack-up barge out nine miles into the open waters um, where there were people sinking these vertical pipes. Um, and they had to meet each other uh, and with a very little uh, room for error. Um, so that uh, was uh, adding to the engineer marvel of the tunnel itself was the um, high demands for precision that these two separate companies working with completely different crews, one above uh, the ocean, miles out into it, one um, hundreds of feet below the ocean, going ten miles out toward it. Uh, right, burrowing through the the Earth's crust. Exactly, and, and they had to connect. Right, and this is exactly the kind of thing that I think is just endlessly fascinating, because now if we you know f- flew a helicopter over Boston. And and someone might point out, okay, and here is the such and such. And I I think at one point in your book you describe what is being built way out, nine miles out, not the tunnel, but this other end of it is almost like the end of a sprinkler. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, diffusing all of this uh, waste coming out of Boston. And then there's this tunnel which uh, connects the city and its inhabitants to this uh, device or whatever you want to call it. And we just assume that somehow that just magically all appeared or was all magically built as one, when in fact the one part was built and the other part was built, and they had to be built or you would you would end up with pipes not lining up with the sprinkler. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and, and remember that down there, um, way below the floor of the ocean, uh, GPS will be of no use to you. So you have to figure out... Um, uh, to make sure you're going in the right direction so you don't get lost. I mean, I, I get lost uh, in a, a shopping mall parking lot, you know, trying to find my car, never mind when you're hundreds of feet below the ocean uh, in the uh, utter uh, uh, darkness trying to uh, find the way uh, to build this tunnel. Right. You describe uh, the, the moment when uh, those building the tunnel first connected with one of these things and it had something to do with really bright green liquid, which was a way to be absolutely certain that they were connecting with what they wanted to connect with. Am I remembering that right? Exactly, yeah. So they filled these connector pipes uh, for those, you know, those vertical pipes that were connecting with the horizontal tunnel. Uh, And then when they got the tunnel out as far as it was supposed to go, uh, they would start uh, boring uh, outward um, to try to make these connections uh, to see if they were in the right direction. Um, 
and they didn't know. It was a kind of a long moment of truth, and they had to essentially, uh, you know, core into the bedrock around the tunnel and to look for these pipes. And the way they would know if they'd hit the right pipes is if um, uh, this uh, seawater that had been dyed uh, green, the color of Gatorade, fluorescent green, would come out. They'd know that that liquid that they had put into the um, to the uh, riser pipes would be coming out, and that would be the key that they'd dye it. Now, if they had just seawater coming in, they'd realize they'd gone the wrong place. Um, so the green was a, a sign of relief when that actually happened. Hmm. Let's talk about the means by which this long tunnel was built. And if I remember correctly, the the actual workers who were doing some of that uh, were known as sand hogs. Right. Sand hogs are sort of a uh, the traditional, the name comes from uh, when they were working with sort of sandy soil uh, rather than the hard uh, bedrock um, that these workers were used to underneath the the, the ocean. Um, uh, but this is kind of a tradition of almost an outlaw society in some ways. Uh, uh, guys who, almost all guys, uh, although there are a few sort of brave women who are now sand hogs on there, um, but these are the people who build the tunnels around us uh, and far from civilization. So some incredibly brave and talented people in this workforce, but also because of it being so far from civilization and away from uh, the rest of society, it has over the years attracted some real characters and some of them, um, you know, sort of uh, ex-criminals and others uh, that are there in the in the mix of things. Anyhow, it's a, it's a hard group of people uh, who are willing to take on a real risk uh, to to do these uh, very difficult jobs. And of course, uh, we've we've already described uh, what what a what a tricky matter it was. I mean, not just incredibly hard work, but also a uh, a, a, a an engineering feat to just get these things to to line up properly. And of course, you also take a moment in this chapter to talk about the almost unimaginable, incalculable risks that uh, are involved in building tunnels. And you quote something that is something of a, of, a, of a tragic mantra in the business, a man a mile. Explain to our listeners what those four words, those four chilling words mean. Yeah, I mean, it is, they are chilling because what it suggests is that people have traditionally known uh, that uh, if you build, uh, say, a 10-mile tunnel, you're probably going to lose 10 men um, along there, uh, that that was the, the price that people would uh, be willing to pay with worker lives for these um, uh, feats of uh, modern in, uh, infrastructure. Uh, and thankfully, we've moved a lot uh, farther away from those chilling statistics, so that on jobs now the 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 expectation and hope is for zero fatalities on a job, and jobs should be designed uh, appropriately so that you don't have them. But always hanging over that is this idea that it, it could happen, and there's this history of loss associated mm. with great things. Right, and you, uh, you you mentioned in this chapter something that. Earlier in the conversation, we touched on the fact that uh, often the most dangerous day on the job 
is the last one. When you are anxious to be done and might be feeling confident and uh, some very serious mistakes can inadvertently be made. Exactly, yeah. That, that, um, that knowledge of that, which again is very counterintuitive, um, uh, but people have to be aware of that. And even the people I talk to who, who work on these jobs weren't familiar with the statistics um, that way, uh, that, that if you don't if you're not aware of it, uh, you can uh, fall victim to these uh, human uh, emotions uh, that are, connect you when you just want to be done. And that certainly happened uh, in this project as well. The day, the end of the project became much more dangerous than the beginning. Who would have thought that uh, in a story which, which in a sense climaxes with uh, uh, a real tragic turn of events, that that actually one of the most riveting chapters would be one called Memo Wars. The third chapter of the book uh, is really very crucial, and 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 it's and it's a drama that plays out, albeit in kind of unlikely fashion, um, in, in the exchange of memos over some some technical matters that that ended up playing a crucial role in why ultimately a, a tragedy occurred uh, in this story. Tell us. What was at the heart of these so-called, uh, this so-called memo war? Yeah, well, I'm glad you uh, you you connected with that because I also uh, was surprised to find the drama that set in motion all of the action of this story um, happening in this what you would think would be a dry environment of memos, but there was uh, foreshadowing in these memos. There was uh, tension mounting tension, uh, and there was this sense of, uh, of uh, human emotion clouding logic and cooperation. Uh, and that's what you see in the memos. You sort of see very smart people not being able to get along and disengaging uh, in many ways from the consequences of their actions. They're all... Uh, motivated to win these battles um, with other parties to this uh, project. Again, these parties have become uh, adversaries this late in the in the game, rather than um, uh, partners. Uh, and these adversaries are sensing bad motivations uh, uh, from the other side. And this small, seemingly small issue of the safety plugs that were installed at the connecting points where that horizontal tunnel connected with those 55 vertical pipes, there'd been that safety plug put in there as a secondary precaution. No one had figured out how those were going to get out. And now in these memos, um, you see the tension between these adversaries on who's going to own the risk and the responsibility for getting those plugs out and how are they going to do it. You actually describe how th- this this question came up early on about w- what do we need in terms of kind of these safety measures. What was this sort of second line of defense? These all these individual plugs. Why were they there? What what were they there to safeguard against? So remember, if you look at, the, and I'll try to again just sort of paint that picture for for your listeners of this vertic, uh, this horizontal ten mile long tunnel in the last mile connecting with these fifty five vertical pipes that climb up to the ocean. On the on the when they meet the ocean floor and punch through the ocean floor, 
there's this mushroom-shaped uh, cap. And inside that mushroom-shaped cap, um, there are, each of them has eight sprinkler nozzles, as we were talking about before, which, which sort of diffuse all this treated, treated wastewater in a way so that a little bit goes through each of those 55 so that it limits its impact. Um, the the uh, mushroom shape had been chosen deliberately as a protection so that if an anchor is dragging along the ocean floor and it bumps into one of these, it will bounce off the, the rounded shape rather than connect with it and rip it open. That... But, Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. But just in case, uh, there were also on the, each of those, remember, each of those mushroom caps has these eight nozzles, sprinkler nozzles. Each of those had its own safety seal on top of those, which would re- be removed only when the project was done by divers swimming down to the bottom and taking off those caps. So essentially, you've got two layers of protection there. Um, but still, the designers worried. Well, what happens if a freak storm happens and that ship anchor dragging along the ocean floor just catches the corner of one of these things? And even though it's been specially designed to withstand that, what if it if 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 the stars align in a in a fateful way and it and it rips open the cap? Uh, then, uh, if it does take that mushroom cap off, you would have. Um, millions of gallons of seawater going down into the tunnel, uh, and if there are, these sand hogs are still working there, it would flood the tunnel, and they'd have very little time to get out of there, and probably many would die. So to guard against that, they put in an additional safety measure, again, for the very remote chance that the stars aligned in that faithful way. They put these plugs, um, which were embedded uh, in those elbow connections where the vertical is meeting the horizontal, each of those 55 spots. Um, But they required, according to the contract, that the tunnel be completely done uh, before those plugs are removed. And then those memos become a debate over what do you mean by done? Uh, do you mean that the tunnel has to be, what if you're selling your house, what they call broom clean condition? You know, everything is out of there. You can move in and everything is fine. And that's what, what, what the parties ultimately decide that they mean by this contract. That means all the ventilation systems, all the transportation systems, all the lighting systems that kept those sand hogs alive for the decade that they were building the tunnel all had to be ripped out but the plug stayed in, and that meant you had to send a small team of, uh, in this case, commercial divers, and put them at enormous risk because they've got to go into this pitch-black, oxygen-starved tunnel 10 miles out and rip open those plugs and get them back out, all while bringing in their own air. So it's going to be a completely empty tunnel. And and it's ten miles long. So so in a sense, it's like traveling down a a ten mile mine shaft. Or or I think you say at another point in the book, this is a little bit like going into some of the deepest abysses known uh, on the ocean floor. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you think about what's the deepest point in in the ocean, uh, the deepest point in the ocean uh, on Earth is uh, the Challenger Deep in uh, Mariana Trench out in the Pacific Ocean. This is the that Titanic director James Cameron made a big deal about when he traveled to in the specially created um, uh, apparatus that he went down to uh, a while back. Uh, That is 6.8 miles deep into the ocean. These guys are almost 10 miles out from the surface. And even though their, their distance is mostly horizontal, they're still 
uh, that far away from uh, the surface. Uh, so they're almost 40% deeper than the deepest point, uh, 40% farther from the surface than the deepest point on Earth. Hmm. And uh, and again, what, what I find striking is, in a sense, that's the, the most sort of overt, direct, obvious drama playing out is when these courageous divers uh, travel through that 10-mile-long tunnel beneath the, the, the surface of the, of the harbor, uh, uh, facing incredible peril. But what sets that up is this drama that plays out uh, for months and years before that uh, in terms of, of how is this matter supposed to be handled about taking out these plugs. If you don't take out the plugs, the whole thing is worthless. And yet, who's going to uh, shoulder the responsibility for that. And you, you spell out in this chapter how again and again that responsibility gets passed on to, to somebody else uh, in, in very, very cavalier fashion sometimes. And, and although both sides of this entrenched dispute uh, claim to be thinking about worker safety more than anything, it's amazing how there can be such radically different ideas about the safest way to do this. That's exactly right. I mean, I think one of the memos I came across was almost eerie to read, um, knowing how events had played out ultimately, because this was a preview of what happened, and this was the contractor saying, if we follow the sequence, this other side is suggesting we have to, which is remove everything, all the life support, and then send in divers to get the plugs out. The, the quote from this memo was, the risk of catastrophe will be exponentially higher. That's the contractor who's writing that. And yet that's the same contractor that ultimately decides to send in the dive crew because they're at such an impasse with the owner of the tunnel and the designer of the tunnel and construction manager of the tunnel. They can't get along, so finally they they roll the dice, call in this outside um dive company with the idea that these fresh eyes will come in and, and get us out of this jam. Hmm. In addition, your your book at this point uh, further introduces us ultimately to these divers who descend into this tunnel to do this work. It's a project which none of them have ever exactly done before. In a sense, it's something nobody anywhere has, has ever done before. Uh, there are some really interesting facets to their personalities, which we leave to our listeners to, to, to read about. One moment that's quite interesting is when you take us inside some of the orientation and training that occurs, and in particular, the point which ends up being made about what they should do if something should befall one of their comrades, uh, which flies right in the face of you know, you get your comrade out no matter what, that when we're talking about these kind of situations in in uh, deep mines or other such treacherous surroundings, a different set of rules simply must apply. Could you say a word about that? Sure. Yeah, these, these commercial divers were used to danger. They're kind of Navy SEAL sort of type of guys who run towards it when everyone's running in the opposite direction. So they're not, they're not faint-hearted. Um, but they also, as you point out correctly, um, are being asked to do something that no one has ever done before in an environment that even they're not familiar with. Uh, this tunnel hasn't been filled yet. Um, 
So it's got some standing water, maybe ankle deep, um, uh, but and it gets very narrow towards the end, uh, so that the point is they're crawling around in the dark about 30 in- into a pipe 30 inches wide, scarcely wider than their shoulders. Um, so the, the the demands and the extreme uh, remoteness uh, of this situation are something that they've never dealt with before. But one of the big tells for them ahead of time that, hey, we're not doing it, the jobs that we're normally doing is they're given some training, and they have someone coming from a, a mining company uh, to people who work in the coal mines to say, here's what you have to do if something happens. And they're like, oh, my God, this is really different what we're being asked to do. Uh, and this trainer from the mine company says, if something goes wrong, do not try to revive your comrade, your team member, because um, all you're going to do is add to the body count. And a lot of things, uh, a lot of the deaths that happen in mines over the years um, come from not the initial some, uh, problem, but was from someone trying to revive a, a fellow team member. So they're trained to guard against that kind of band of brothers instinct that we think about with people who work in foxholes of whatever kind together, which is you never leave without your buddy. Um, they're told to get out of there, that another crew will be coming in to um, to to uh, get the bodies, but your job is not to add to the body count uh, and to get yourself safely out of there as, as quickly as you can. Imagine that you're in a crisis and something happens and you have to make that kind of existential decision, which which gets that you know, mind versus heart, and at the same time, you don't even know if you're going to make it uh, alive. Um, that's what these guys were subjected to. Mm. I We, of course, don't have time to explore exactly what happens, but I think we, we should just briefly sketch the calamity which does befall this, this team of divers as they uh, penetrate deep into this long tunnel. What goes wrong on that fateful day? Yeah, and, and I would say, I know we're going to be short on time, so if people are interested, they can go to trappedundersea.com, and there's some background material. There's also some profiles of the divers who were on this job, uh, and lots of other information and, and videos and other things on there. For, for I hope people will check it out. But in, in short, um, uh, these guys, because this was so remote, um, the conventional air supplies that divers would normally use were kind of a non-starter here. So that's why they were given this experimental, first-of-its-kind breathing system, uh, which was uh, mixing liquid nitrogen and liquid oxygen uh, in order to get breathable air, uh, mixing it right there in the tunnel because you can transport a lot more air uh, if it's liquefied and then you uh, vaporize it to gas down there rather than trucking in or or carting in um, uh, pre-mixed air. Uh, and that system uh, uh, was not ready for prime time, and that uh, failed them, uh, and that's what uh, caused this uh, calamity down there uh, where uh, not all of those divers who went in made it out, and it came very close to all of them not making out. It's a miracle that uh, that uh, some of them were able to get out. Uh, you give us a riveting account of that, and then of the sort of ongoing consequences of, 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 of that trauma which they uh, experienced. At the heart of so much of this, this is the point uh, at, at which we, uh, we need to conclude, uh, but I want you to reiterate 
the important point that uh, that you make that at, in so many cases, when it comes to huge projects like this, you you tell us that uh, at the banquets and at the ribbon cuttings and the news headlines, it's almost always the the designers and the overseers of these projects who are in the limelight and uh, receive all of the accolades. When in when when in effect, what truly makes it happen um, are people like these sand hogs or these courageous divers, uh, people whose faces we typically never see, whose names we typically never know. Can you just say a quick word about that and how that is especially true in this case? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we do take for granted what makes modern life possible. I think we all do. I certainly did prior to this, and I hope what people draw from this story is uh, a connection with the real lives of the people who make this world possible, who put it together out of view. And one of the most rewarding things for me has been the reaction from people who are actually, I'm describing in this story, the real life characters who were trying to do their best work, the designers and the engineers and the managers who told me, you know, it was only after reading this book that I connected what we were talking about when we were in these heated battles with various parties, that they were actual human beings who were being asked to do this. I know it sounds sort of obvious, but it's not when it becomes, uh, you know, when you're writing memos and when you're worried about legal concerns and other things, it's so easy to get disconnected from the workers and the real lives that are affected here. So a couple of these people have told me, we think everyone who's a a starting engineer or a manager um, uh, or running a dive company or whatever it is, these people should have to read this book just to kind of remind them of the connection between the real lives and the real people who make these uh, monuments uh, to civilization possible. The book again is Trapped Under the Sea, One Engineering Marvel, Five Men, and a Disaster, Ten Miles Into the Darkness, published by Crown. Neil Swidey, I hope you can tell how much I loved this book. I think it's so important. I hope many people will seek it out and read it. Thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. Thank you so much, Greg. I really appreciate your interest and your great questions.